Accept one another is our theme for this morning. Really grateful to the folks for leading us and uh, focusing our minds on what this means in terms of our relationship with God. And it made me think about um, a phrase which I, I think it was the theologian Paul Tillich once used, with, in which he said, the most difficult thing about being a Christian is accepting the fact that I am accepted, even though I find myself to be unacceptable. The most difficult thing about being a Christian is accepting the fact that I am accepted, even though I find myself to be unacceptable. And there's no doubt the longer you live your life as a Christian and the more you read the scriptures, the more you realize just how far off we are by nature from what God intended. And the irony is that sometimes for Christians who've been on the road a long time, that actually can lead to despair. And it can actually lead to an element of being unable to reconcile what you actually know yourself to be with what you believe yourself to be uh, and what you say in your songs and and the rest of it. But that's part of the challenge. And I'm grateful this morning for the help in thinking that through as we have been singing together. Last week we considered the theme of loving one another. Uh, We thought about it in terms of looking to God as the starting point. Uh, as the source, avoiding the kind of water boundaries and, and starting in that direction, first of all. Uh, we looked at following Jesus as the uh, way in which that actually works out in practice. And we thought about the theme of bearing witness, bearing witness to others in the way in which we love one another. And also bearing witness to our own souls, our own spirits, that we belong to God. And this theme, this week the theme is accept one another. And I hope that helps put some bones on the flesh of last week as well. So what I want to do this morning is share a couple of my own experiences, um, then to look at the text in Romans chapter 15, the first seven verses of it, and then suggest some challenges that you might like to think about or need to think about in the days ahead. I don't normally start with my own experiences. In fact, I don't normally include my own experiences in preaching at all because it's not generally the wise thing to do. But I have two reasons for doing it this morning. The first is the need to be honest about the challenge that this theme is and has been to me. So this is not something that I simply believe is easy. It's something that's been challenging. And also I think that I need to illustrate that how we understand the scriptures and how we come to these texts is very often shaped by our experience. Most of us, and especially preachers, like to think that what we know and what we say is some form of objective truth that nobody can argue with. And we use terms like the plain teaching of scripture, or scripture clearly teaches, or the word of God says, and we say it with authority. And there are times when that is true. In the beginning, God created. There's not much to argue with there. But actually there's a lot of debate about how he actually did it. The death and resurrection of Jesus are cornerstones of what the New Testament is about. Though the nature of how and what his death achieved is often debated and discussed among Christians. The fact is that what we often see as the plain teaching of scripture is more the consequence of the influences brought to bear on us through our lives. I grew up in a strongly dispensational premillennial church, and if you don't know what that means, the Lord bless you. <laughs> if you do, you're with me at this point. 
My first leather Bible was a Schofield reference Bible. Anybody here ever had a Schofield reference Bible? Yeah, you're showing your age, guys. <laughs> Did I believe everything it said about the dispensations of time, the rapture, the second coming? Of course I did. I was given it by my parents. It was the ethos of our church. We held prophetic conferences every year. As kids, we used to call them pathetic conferences, but that was just a little bit of rebellion. The leaders of my church, that was their conviction. Of course I believed it. As a teenager, I spent a lot of time with some uh, Baptist pastors who were quite reformed in their theology. And if you don't understand what reformed in their theology is, the Lord bless you. That's a good thing. Did I reject the falsehoods of dispensationalism and imbibe the glories of five-point Calvinism? Of course I did. I looked up to these men. Their arguments were strong, they were good people, and they took a big and genuine interest in me and my friends. As a student at the Irish Baptist College in my early 20s, was I a dispensationalist? No. Was I a five-point Calvinist? No. Because I realised I couldn't swallow some of the ideas like limited atonement. And as a fellow student said to me on my first day at college, well then, this place will suit you just fine. You can sit on the fence with all the rest of the faculty here. <laughs> <coughs> and it wasn't intended as a compliment. You see, the reality is all of us approach the scriptures influenced by a myriad of experiences and encounters, whether we choose to acknowledge it or not. And my advice to you in the context of learning to accept one another is to have the humility to accept that fact. So, two experiences that among many others have shaped my approach to the text of Romans chapter 15, which is, accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. Romans 15 verse 7. It was probably around 1985 in Uri, where I was the pastor in the Baptist church there. And Uri was not far from that seedbed of charismatic ecumenical heresy. The Christian Renewal Centre in Ross Trevor, led by that arch ecumenical compromiser Cecil Kerr. <laughs> now, I wasn't a raving fundamentalist, I don't think. But... I did share the view that this kind of charismatic stuff and this ecumenical stuff was no servant to the gospel. Because here we were as a small community in a 95%, 96% Catholic community. This just muddied the waters. This was not helpful. But a group of us, and I can't remember whether we were invited or asked to go down, I think we were probably invited, went down um, to meet the folks in the renewal centre at Ross Trevor. And to this day, I can see clearly in my mind uh, the front door as we approached it. And there was that arch heretic, Cecil Kerr, standing there <clears throat> with his hand extended to us, clearly his heart wide open. <clears throat> and for the next couple of hours, as we sat and drank tea together, did I learn to accept my charismatic brothers and sisters in Christ? No, I learned from them what acceptance meant. Nobody tried to make me anything other than what I was. Nobody was interested in trying to make me something that I did not believe God had called me to be. 
But the level of interest in me, the level of acceptance of me, the level of prayerfulness for me, the level of concern for me, and the church that I was ministering in in Newry, the level of understanding of me and my background, the care for me taught me a valuable lesson. And to this day, I can still see Cecil standing in the door and welcoming us through that door. It was a salutary lesson in learning to accept one another as God in Christ had accepted us. The second story is about some reflection I did after I finished my pastoral work in Uri. I was there about 10 years, took a couple of years out to do some study and work and voluntary work. And I ended up spending quite a bit of time reflecting on my attitudes and my role as a pastor in the church. And particularly my expectation of people in the church. And I recognised that I had actually gone into ministry and carried for those 10 years a kind of mental image of what a sound, mature, reliable Christian should look like. Now clearly there's a lot of teaching in the New Testament that tends that way. That's why we try to reorientate our lives to be more like Christ. But then I hadn't really bothered to come to terms, even though I'd preached in these things, I hadn't really bothered to come to terms with the Abraham, the Moses, the David, the Solomon, the Peter, the man of unbelief and staggering ethnic prejudice, Paul and Barnabas, two people with an ability to virtually tear a new church apart because of their disagreements. I hadn't really come to terms with a lot of that stuff and even the nature of life in the early church and why the letters to the churches were written in the first place. The pastoral expectation of the spiritual health or usefulness of people was probably far too low and far too arrogant because you tended to expect and look for a a fairly finished work and that was your job to help create a fairly finished work when in fact we're all a work in progress. And God can and does use people who are very much a work in progress in very powerful ways. Now I confess that annoys me. But the reality is that some of the greats that I was nurtured on, like Murray McShane and Carey and Hudson Taylor and John Wesley, were difficult people. Many of them had very difficult family relationships. But God used them, and used them powerfully. And as I reviewed my attitude to the people I'd met, the people I'd worked with over a decade, somehow the difficult people, the strange people, the dogmatic people, the woolly-minded people, all became quite different in my thinking. Because they were precious to God, accepted by God, used by God as they were, as he was at work in them not as I expected them to be. God accepts, uses and blesses people I wouldn't take under my notice. That's the reality. And that changed my attitude to pastoral ministry and the way I operated, I think, in Windsor. So let's hear what Romans chapter 15 has to say, the first seven verses. I'm reading from the New International Version. And it says, we who are strong ought to bear with the feelings of the weak and not please ourselves. Each of us should please his neighbour for his good to build him up. For even Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, 
The insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you a spirit of unity among yourselves as you follow Christ Jesus so that with one heart and mouth you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Accept one another then just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. The striking thing is that this passage is set in the context of the call to love one another. That's the, the overall context of this. First 11 chapters of Romans, Paul is setting out the gospel of God concerning his son and what that actually means. In Romans 12 to 16, he's really dealing with the implications of what that means, the implications of the gospel of God, how it actually hits the ground, what it means in, in reality. In chapter 12, for example, verse 10, this is where he starts with the love one another with mutual affection. So it's not just John who was into this theme, it's, it's a constant New Testament theme. In chapter 13, verse 8, he says, love, uh, owe no one anything except to love one another. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. And in verses 9 and 10 he says, The commandments are summed up in this. Love your neighbour as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbour. Therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. And Paul moves from the exhortation to love one another into the practical outworkings of what that means. So here are what I think are some of the key principles that emerge in this text the first one is that the same verse um, in chapter 1, uh, sorry, 15 verse 1 and, 15, and 14 verse 1, this, the, the verse there is very much the same and raising the same issue. It's a call to generosity and grace. 14.1, accept him whose faith is weak without passing judgment on disputable matters. 15.1, we who are strong ought to bear with the feelings of the weak and not to please ourselves. The call here is to accept one another, even if we consider each other to be incomplete, immature, weak, or failing. That we are to make room for each other in our own lives and in the life of the church. The second thing that really stands out for me in these verses, 14.1 and 15.1, is the way he says, accept those who are weak in the faith, but not for the purpose of quarreling over opinions. That's how the New Revised Standard Version translates 14 verse 1. There was plenty to quarrel about in the church in Rome, which is why Paul writes the letter that he writes. There were many Gentile believers and some Jewish believers. So there was a whole mix of pagan and Jewish religious backgrounds. And coming to terms with what it means to follow Jesus was not an easy thing for them to settle in that environment. And while the idea of disputing over foods, which is what a lot of the problem was about in the church in Rome, maybe seems a bit odd to us, we shouldn't underestimate just how big an issue that was. And if you think of today, the fact it's still an issue in Jewish communities, it's an issue increasingly for us to address within Muslim communities, as our world changes too. What for some in the contemporary world is an essential religious practice, like halal uh, uh, killing of, of, of meat is for others uh, inhumane and should be outlawed and should be banned and maybe you've seen some of that in the papers or on the news in the past week 
It's a big issue for a lot of people. So these were not minor issues that they were fighting over. These were deep cultural religious convictions that people were dis discussing and disputing. And Paul is saying <clears throat> that accepting one another means don't try to win every argument with those who see things differently. That's what without passing judgment on disputable matters means. Now these were deep issues for them coming out of their different cultures. Paul says accept one another without trying to settle all of these quarrels or without accepting someone so that you can win the argument. Now that's very countercultural to the Western evangelical mindset because we tend to buy into fairly clear definitive positions. We like to put people right, speaking for myself, too often just like to put them right and sometimes quite willing to accept them so that I'll have the opportunity to put them right. But sometimes our dogmatism is an expression of our own insecurity. Sometimes it's an expression of sincere convictions. Sometimes it's a desire to control others. Often it's a combination of all three. Dallas Willard's daughter has edited a book which is going to be published in April called The Allure of Gentleness. And in the preface to the book she says... Today, apologetics has become something of a cage match, revolving around proofs of God's existence and involvement in the world. It has become a harsh battleground for the intelligent design versus Darwinism debate and other hot-button religious versus science arguments. What's lost in today's apologetics is to gently and lovingly address, even welcome, the honest doubts and questions that burden believers' faith. And then she quotes James 3, But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without a trace of partiality or hypocrisy. And she also points out that of Jesus it was said that Isaiah's prophecy was fulfilled in him when Isaiah said, He will not fight or shout. He will not raise his voice in public. He will not crush those who are weak or quench the smallest hope. Or as the NIV puts it, a bruised reed he will not break, a smouldering wick he will not snuff out. So this is the way of Jesus. Accepting one another, whatever we think about where we're at in the Christian journey, our weakness, our maturity or our lack of it. And accepting one another not to win arguments over one another but to respect one another and learn to deal with those differences. The third thing that really strikes me about these chapters and, and the way it's summarized in chapter 15 is that we need to respect those who have come to convictions that are different from ours, such as here attitudes to holy days and foods. Verse uh, 5 of chapter 14, Paul says, One man considers one day more sacred than another, another man considers every day alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. People can come to sincerely different convictions from me and have as much integrity as I think I have, maybe even more. Furthermore, they, like you and me, are shaped in their approach to the faith and to scripture by context culture and community. Now some people might hear what I've just said as postmodern relativism and wouldn't be surprised. But it's not. It's just a fact. It's why the Bible constantly tells us we need to have humility. 
and why Paul says that the only bar of truth is God's judgment. Until you're there at God's judgment seat, all other judgments are provisional. Tainted by our fallenness and our finiteness. So remember, you'll have enough on your hands giving account of your own life when it comes to it without trying to give an account for everybody else's. The text in this accepting one another passage, chapter 14 and chapter 15, also makes it very clear that we shouldn't judge or look down on a fellow Christian. Verse 13 of chapter 14, it's quite explicit. Stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in your brother's way. This is a two-way thing. On the one hand, be convinced in your own mind what's right. On the other hand, do allow your convictions, or sorry, do not allow your convictions to be the basis of destroying a brother or sister. And in case we miss the point, Paul says in verse 17 of chapter 14, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, or arguing about eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, joy in the Holy Spirit. In verse 19 he says, Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and mutual edification rather than destroy the work of God. And with all of that background, then we come to those verses in chapter 15, 1-7. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbour for their good to build them up. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through the endurance taught in scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. So at the heart of accepting one another is the understanding that the church is not here for us. We are here for the church, the community. Of course it's reasonable to expect to be ministered to in the life of the church, but each of us is here for the benefit of the other. I've been involved in a lot of pre-marriage counselling over the years, and one of the points I've always tried to communicate is that a healthy marriage is one in which each party is investing in the other, as opposed to simply hoping what they're going to get from the other. And it's the same in church life. As the text says, each of us should please our neighbours for their good to build them up, for even Christ did not please himself. So accepting one another is about creating a fellowship of grace and having chosen the name Grace Fellowship, you've kind of committed yourselves, haven't you? And what we see in here in Romans 12 to 15 is a blueprint for a Grace Fellowship. There are some Grace Fellowships which are primarily about the doctrines of grace. The church where we teach a particular theological position. I assume that was not the reason why you chose the name Grace Fellowship. Good. <laughs> then accepting one another as God and Christ accepted you in order to bring grace, praise to God is your calling. It is your vocation as a community. 
So a few challenges as I reflect on this theme that may or may not be relevant for you as, as a community. First of all, don't assume you know what a person has to be like or capable of believing before God can love them, save them, use them and gift them into your care. Don't expect more than is reasonable. I think it's hugely regretful that the practice of many churches and denominations is to insist that people sign up to a very detailed statement of faith, a basis of doctrine or a confession of faith before they're welcomed into membership of a fellowship. It makes sense that a church should have a clear statement of what it believes. That makes sense. But to ask people to sign up to something that they could not possibly fully understand, particularly if they're a new Christian, is abusive. It's the pathway to guilt for people. As they do begin to understand things, then maybe they have to start challenging them. And when they begin to challenge them in their heads, maybe they feel they don't really belong anymore and you create all kinds of problems. I'm a great advocate of asking people to sign up to a covenant that is about relationships rather than a basis of faith. Now, I don't know what your plans are, so I hope I'm not being a nuisance here. But anyway, I'm just telling you what I think. I discovered that both Newry Baptist Church and Windsor Baptist Church, in which I ministered, both had church covenants. Newry, had it, Newry was founded in 1889, and it had a church covenant before it ever had a basis of faith or a statement of faith. And the covenant was very simple. It was thoroughly biblical. It was people expressing their faith in Jesus Christ, but it was primarily about the commitment to love one another and help one another in the Christian and heavenward way, as I think they worded it in those, in those days. So people were committed to what they could know. They could know that Jesus was their saviour. That's why they were there. But they could know that they had to live like Jesus. And it was pretty obvious what that looked like. And people could sign up and commit to what they knew. The church, presumably through its leaders or whatever, had a structure and through its congregation had agreed as a statement, if you like, of what it was the church actually believed and was about. But the commitment to one another... The belonging was based on that kind of covenantal commitment. I think it's a very practical way of expressing acceptance of one another. A statement of absolute basics of the faith and a strong commitment to following Jesus together in the life of the community is more than enough as the basis for accepting one another. You need to leave room for people to struggle with their doubts without feeling that they have become unacceptable. I struggle with some of the things that I used to sign up to. And sometimes you feel, well, if I was back there, I would be unacceptable. Maybe that's not the view of other people, but that's what it says on paper. So accept him whose faith is weak. Make room for them. Don't ask them to sign up to more than they can possibly know. And in that way, express the practice of this biblical thing of accepting one another as God and Christ has accepted you. That's my first challenge. Second one is, remember that acceptance and approval are not the same thing and they don't necessarily come together. There's a lot of discussion today about, obviously, gay lifestyles and same-sex marriage. And there are a lot of people who feel very exercised that this is a right and a human right. And there are some people who promote this who are simply grateful that it's accepted. There are others who promote it and say that unless you actually agree that this is right, you are homophobic. That's where I have a problem. 
Many in some, sorry, I mean, I'm not qualified to say many, some in the gay community for whom acceptance of who they are is just not enough. They require approval of their sexual behavior and equality in marriage and for that to be declared by us all as being the right thing. Well, I can't do that. <coughs> and I suspect that many of you can extend the first acceptance of what a person is and their orientation, but not necessarily the second. But sometimes we fail to apply the same principle in church life and think that because we can't approve of what a fellow Christian does or thinks, we shouldn't accept them. We won't sometimes extend to other Christians the liberty to be what they are that we will extend to people who aren't Christians. Because we are afraid that accepting them means we approve of everything. And yet, with those who aren't Christians, we don't take that approach. We can accept them, but we know we don't have to approve of everything they do or believe. Sometimes in church life we can't make that distinction. I need to approve of you. I need to approve of everything you do, you think, before I can actually feel that I can accept you. Don't fall into that trap. Sometimes we think that we are obliged to approve of whatever people accept or do or think. And that's not the case. Paul is clear. Each one should be clearly convinced in his own mind. You should know what you think. You should strive to know what you think about all sorts of issues. You can accept other Christians who see things differently from you. It does not mean that you necessarily approve of everything they are or everything that they do. And God doesn't expect you to either. He expects you to be convinced in your own mind. And to extend acceptance. The issue is not having to approve of everything each member does or thinks The issue is living gracefully together, which means making judgments but avoiding quarrelling, avoiding judgmental attitudes. And if the difference is a matter of sin or wrongdoing, admonish one another. But you might be hearing more about that later. You're not called to confuse acceptance with approval. There are many things in church life that need to be discussed that we do not necessarily agree on. And yes, there are limits on fellowship within the New Testament. That's clear when things get too extreme. And there may be things over which you will part company, but try and do it graciously and don't let it be by the Paul and Barnabas method. And the final thing I'd want to say about challenges is that acceptance needs to be active, not passive. I know a number of guys who are Christians and open about their sexual orientation and about being homosexual. I have a choice. I can accept them as fellow Christians and keep them at arm's length, or I can engage with them and try and understand their lives. The first is easy. That's just words. The second is disturbing. Because if I engage, I'm going to have to start making decisions. I'm going to be out of my comfort zone. But actually... That's what acceptance means. And I have learned a lot from them. The same is true with disability, whether it's physical or mental. It's striking that most of the churches in this country have little evidence of people with disability. Why is that, I wonder? How on earth could someone with significant learning disability ever become a member of a Northern Ireland Evangelical Church if there's a basis of faith that A, they couldn't read and B, they could never understand? 
Acceptance has to be about willingly making provision for those who face challenges, whether learning, physical or mental. It's part of what accepting one another in Christ means, as God has accepted them. What about people who are unmarried or couples who are childless? For some in both of those groups, for some in both of those groups, church can be hell on earth. They can feel themselves to be utterly invisible. The focus on church life is often, and not wrongly, family orientated, child orientated sometimes, but sometimes so thoughtlessly so that it becomes exclusive, not inclusive. And I noticed inclusive is one of the words that appears on your, your vision statement. But it's inclusive at all of these different kinds of levels. Some parents are so concerned that the church makes provision for their children and family life that they can't see that their joy and privilege is somebody else's pain. Acceptance needs to be active. Actively hearing from and addressing the needs of the childless and the unmarried who wish their lives were otherwise or who have something to contribute because they are content with their lives and actually there's not anything wrong with them. Accepting one another as God and Christ has accepted you pushes us into all of these kinds of areas to think about. It's not a theoretical thing. It ultimately comes down to how we associate together, the basis on which we associate together, the degree to which we are prepared to make provision for one another, and you, as you, as a still fairly young fellowship, head off into the future, need to bear these things in mind. They're maybe not going to be the biggest issues you're going to always have to address with, but you need to think about them. You need to ask yourselves, what does the word inclusive mean? I worked with a, a church in London. Um, it was a, a day consultation thing. And one of their biggest values and, and visions as a church is inclusiveness. They are so inclusive that they are clearly exclusive. And some of them couldn't see that. They are so inclusive of absolutely everybody and everything, or so it appears, that anybody who has a concern or a conviction that's slightly contrary would find it very, very difficult to survive. There is no such thing as just inclusiveness. Your definition of inclusiveness is going to exclude somebody else somewhere, almost certainly. And you need to be aware of that. You need to think about it. You need to know what it is you are. You need to know what it is you're called to do. And you need to be willing to wrestle sometimes with some fairly difficult issues. But I'm sure you're up for that. Otherwise you wouldn't be sitting here. And I'm sure that the grace of God will be sufficient for you as you seek to do that. And may you know his blessing. Amen.